Welcome to the Demystify Side podcast. I'm your host, Anastasia. I'm Michael Shadow. And today we are talking with Ayla. So Ayla came across my radar because she maintains this really big Twitter account where she does surveys about people's sex preferences, relationship preferences, lifestyle preferences. And I found out that despite the fact that she has this really big audience and she asks these really interesting questions, there's a lot of people who seem to think that what she's doing is not science. And that is pretty frustrating because I think that science is about asking questions, trying to figure out mechanism, and seeing what you can say about the world by looking at it. And that's exactly what Ayla's doing. And so I wanted to have her on the podcast to talk about her experience as an extra academic who is trying to understand nature. And I think that we got that. She came by and we talked about uh, her arc in sex work, her arc in sex research, what it means to be somebody who is living outside of convention, how to be somebody that accomplishes something in the world that you were not necessarily destined to do by dint of your birthright. Yeah, and I think the... The interesting thing about all of this is that the extra academic research avenues suffer from the same problems that the academic institutions suffer from. And in general, survey-type research is really difficult because it's subject to biases you can't even see. And I feel like this is something that we really explored and hopefully came to some interesting revelations about. So let us know what you think in the comments. Please tell us what we could do better. If you enjoyed it, share it with somebody. That's the only way we're reaching people. And if you hate us, tell us too and tell us why you hate us. But if you really love it, consider joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash demystifysci. We have a really cool little tight-knit community going. We do a weekly meetup over Zoom. And so we'd love to see you there and help us steer the ship a bit. Enjoy the conversation. We'll see you next time. The scientific revolution starts now. I rotate through like several different survey projects. So as, as per like new, what happens usually is like, I'm sitting there thinking about a thing or talking to someone or watching a video. And then there's a question, a curiosity I have. And I'm like, oh, I think I have some data about that. Because I just have so much data that I haven't processed. And then I'm like, then I have to go like look at it. And then maybe it turns into a blog post. And that takes a couple of days. Or it's like, oh, I should build a survey for that. And then you have to go and you get caught by the survey monster, the the demon of survey creation that just possesses you and you're helpless before it. Um so today I was working on um, doing factor analysis on my giant kink survey to see if there's any spectrums, but I don't have satisfying answers yet. Do you build you build these studies yourself? So you're you're designing the survey and then you you're analyzing it all by yourself, or are you working mm-hmm. with a team of people? Just just me. That's that's pretty intense. Seems. <laughs> to me, it's like a hobby. To me, it feels somebody like, like, oh, wow, you're gardening in your backyard by yourself. And I'm like, well, is that not, I don't know, I just like gardening. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I think that it's mostly that people have a hard time imagining having a large enough audience or a pool of people that you can actually ask things from. Because generally, if somebody's like, I have a question that I want to ask the world, it's really hard for them to imagine being able to go out into the world and effectively ask it. Mm. And so there's there's just an unfamiliarity when it comes to to pulling people into understanding the world in a way that is more than just going to a couple of your friends and being like, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. And I get a lot of shit because like other people that I'm pulling are, you know, selection biased. Um, Cause I think people don't, it's like people view it. I think a little bit as like just pulling kind of a lot of your friends. Um, I think they even view it worse than that. I think people like tend to up, make updates about the world much more significantly based on anecdotes from their friends. And they do about other things, despite it, other things having like much larger sample sizes. Um, well, yeah, because you trust your friends, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's true. But also, it's like a tiny and biased sample. I was so okay. So this this is an interesting thing about statistics, right? Which is that statistics do tell you about some general idea of an average, but your experience in the world is not necessarily an average experience by its very nature. It's rare. I mean, surely there's some people that have like a completely, you know, peak of the bell curve experience for whatever it is that they encounter, but there's most people are living somewhere outside of that peak. And so when you hear a statistic, I think that it's immediately filtered through the lens of, well, does that correlate to what I've seen in my own world? And so when your pool when when Gallup or Pew does a poll, there's this belief that what they're doing is they're picking a sufficiently representative population that can be depended upon. And I feel like that's not really true. Well, because yeah, I mean it depends on the polling methods. Like a lot of the time you like pick phone numbers randomly from like, you know, the official giant logbook and then you call them or send them mail. And none of these things are truly random, right? Because you're filtering for people willing to go through the process of answering a survey. But that's just sort of, this is like literally inescapable. Anytime you do a survey, you are necessarily selecting for people who want to answer surveys. I do think that Pew and Gallup have like much more random samples than what I have. Um, But you can do like a huge amount without random samples. And most academic research is not conducted on random samples. So. How how do you fight against that? Or do you fight against it? Or is there any... Against just different biases, or how do you diversify your your sample population, or like how does like because observational studies and, and survey studies in general they have this inherent difficulty. What are the ways that they can be made useful? I guess is the question. I think it depends a lot on what you're measuring. So I, I'm eating because I, I haven't eaten all day, and I was like running yeah. around. I just got here, so I'm just. Uh, to I would, me, eating while talking is like completely normal. But I recently was on a podcast where somebody got mad at me. They're like, uh, like I wish I'm more people would violating some sort of social norm. That's all good. No, I wish more people would bring dinner to this show. Actually, I I look forward to that in the future. We could turn it actually into a bit where we eat while we host the podcast. <laughs> that would be good. Um, but no, I think like determining like when you're looking out for a sample, uh, like a bias in your sample, it depends a huge amount on what you're measuring. Like, um. Uh, like, like one of the pet peeves that I have is that like selection bias is what is creating these results is a hypothesis. 
Um, and people don't treat it as like a hypothesis that you're waiting against other hypotheses. They're treating it as sort of like the thing that you just default to whenever you don't have a random sample. Um, like if you're measuring, uh, like when you eat less, do you lose weight? Um, probably this is pretty robust to selection bias. If you like ask a whole bunch of people at a university versus people who use the internet, like versus, you know, old people or young people, probably you're going to see a correlation. Maybe the correlation will change a little bit. Like age is probably a confounder. Uh, but like these correlations are really stable across population. Um, and so people have done like some meta analysis, like I'm using that term, but not officially, uh, where they like basically check like to what degree the sampling uh, bias like affects conclusions. And they got it's like not actually that much. You just have to make sure that you're measuring something that is independent of the thing that's that's creating the bias in your sample. Um, and most of the time I do. Sometimes I don't. For example, I did a one on like polyamory and porn use and Right. And this is very biased by the people who follow me because I'm like a sex worker who like posts news and porn, one poly, whatever. Uh, so you have to be like a lot more careful with stuff like that. And I am a lot more careful. Like I have a whole blog post going into like to what degree is selection bias actually impacting my results? Because you can compare it to other studies, for example. Um, so, yeah, I'm just saying that like the way that you deal with the problem depends a lot on like, like, for example, you can't trust base rates quite as well. Like if I'm asking like my audience, how much do you watch porn? And it's like, oh, 40% watch porn. But then like, probably that's really uh, going to be not representative of the general population. But if you're checking like, oh, like the more that you watch porn, does that correlate with the more that you masturbate? Uh, probably this is going to hold like regardless of the kind of population that you're measuring, mostly, you know, within reason. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm saying it just depends quite a lot on the kind of thing you're measuring. But that's the case for all of science, right? So one of the things that was really frustrating for me is that I was a microbiologist and the way that we study bacteria in the laboratory is really confined. Like there's 30 million species of bacteria. There's maybe about somewhere between 30 and 100 that are medically relevant. And the way that we study them is rarely in situ in the body. We have assays that we use to kind of approximate conditions. So like bacteria tend to live in biofilms, right, which is an aggregate of bacteria on a surface. It used to be that we thought that they mostly lived loose, but that's not actually the case. And so every single lab has a different biofilm model for what it is that they're looking at. And there's a great difficulty in taking a study that you do inside of a dish on what a bacteria does and actually getting it to be relevant to a medical context. Like we've been curing cancer in rats for decades now, right? <laughs> so the, the rats are super happy, but what about the humans kind of thing? Yeah. And so there's there's always this problem where it's like the the question that you're asking might work really well within your model system, but it doesn't generalize that well. And so I don't think that it's particularly a problem of surveys or or any other kind of inquiry. It's just a fundamental problem with how do you make sure that the question that you're asking is a really robust question that isn't going to be affected by the conditions under which you look at it? Because so many experiments that you do in the lab are highly dependent on a set of deeply artificial variables that you've set. And you get a lot of pushback for the work that you do. And I think that it's unfair because there's like this tendency to believe that inside the academy, it's completely different and completely objective. And it just, 
I think that people are misrepresenting the objectivity of what comes out of the academy pretty deeply when they make that criticism. Yeah, I think people are like viewing science in sort of like really narrativized lens. Like they're viewing truth as like much more simple than it is. It's like you go in and you get the truth training and then you go and you wear the truth coats and you go (laughs) shake your finger in the truth kind of way. And then you get the truth out of like a paper. And if you're not like performing this ritual, then you do not like magically generate the truth. Uh, so if you're viewing things like sort of subconsciously through that lens, then of course, of course, I'm going to get disproportionate amounts of shit. And it's not even subconscious. It's less, less scrutiny, but sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just saying it's not even subconscious really. It's, it's like the declared, it's the declared profession of the academic scientist, right? They, you know, what is determined in the laboratory is the truth until it's not essentially. I, I, I think that that's. I think that they're perfectly happy with saying so. It's, it's actually a huge thing that we just run into over and over again because I totally understand why you'd want to be able to say something certain about the universe in general, like any particular point. And there's probably some hope for degrees of reliability about information that you could obtain from what's happening, but it's a fine line between saying you can't know anything and saying, well, we have to take what we do know with a grain of salt. Yeah, you have to update your models. Like, like you're just what you're doing is collecting evidence, and then each piece of evidence, you're like, ah, what universe am I in? Am I like that? You're trying to figure out, like, am I in the universe where this thing is true, or the universe where it's not? And then you get a piece of evidence, and you're like, okay, how likely is it I would observe this kind of evidence in universe A versus universe B? And then you just collect a whole bunch of those little pieces of evidence. And like to me, my personal perception is that science is like the process of like generating those pieces of evidence and then updating your, your probability about what, what universe that you're in. It's not like an absolute thing, and it is possible to generate like uh, pieces of evidence that update your models like a little bit stronger than others. Um, which is, I think, this is like for example, like Gallup and Pew and like really strong attempts to do like randomized stuff i think that's good because like i think it like gives you like an even stronger level of updating if i could have perfectly random samples i think this would very much increase the quality and the amount that you can update but it doesn't mean you can't update if you don't do things exactly right or if you like uh are not doing things according to like traditional procedure all it means is that you just have like smaller bumps um in, in which universe you think is more likely and this is like a spectrum sort of approach that a lot of people that I talk to don't seem to have, especially online. They sort of kind of view it as binary. Like either something is, you know, undeniable, unassailable proof in favor of universe A and like, you know, debunked, you know, destroyed universe B is down. I'm like, like it's, it has to be one or the other. But like, but for me, it's like a very, you know, slowly updating sort of granular process. It seems like that's got to have some deep evolutionary roots in life forms human beings like you have to be able to make a decision right like do you go this way or that way do we do this or do that i think that people are just kind of set up for that split decision like which way are we going one way or the other like i i fear that there's not a good way out of that paradigm people will always be wanting some snap decision especially the masses of people right there's also sorry go ahead no no no. go ahead we tend towards that I, mean, I think we tend towards it, but you can be like sort of trained out of it. Like I think I kind of got trained out of it over time, um, and I also think it's like an ego thing. Like you sort of want to know what tribe to fight for. Like, am I fighting for Universe A or fighting for Universe B? And like, if it's kind of unclear, you don't get the satisfaction of you know fighting for a thing that you know is true. 
So it's, it's, I think it's like a psycho psychological thing um, as well as like, I mean, that is evolutionary, the fighting for something. Um, but I think it'd be trained out. I think I'm hopeful about it. But sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that with something like sex research, I think that it hits on a on a personal, moral, psychological, social aspect that people don't have about other stuff. Like when you're studying bacteria, there's definitely a collection of values that goes into that. Like there's there's some tenets of belief that are instrumental for being able to do the science. Like I remember the the guy that I was working for when I was doing my PhD, he was like he he would almost transgressively behind doors declare that he believed that bacteria wanted things. <laughs> and he would be very proud of the fact that he was saying that. And it's like, well, obviously they want things. How could you how could you be a living creature that doesn't? And yet that's kind of a verboten perspective inside of science. Like you're not supposed to say that about bacteria or even about animals like we have this tendency of looking at the animal world and being like they don't have the same sorts of desires emotions and motivations that we have but that's that's this that's just a belief that we have about the world and when you push on it it does tend to acquire kind of a moral flavor to it because i think it has a lot to do with the like the the Dawkins new atheism movement where you take the spirit out of biology. But when you're doing sex research, you're you're pulling and pushing on things that people hold really deeply inside their heart of hearts. And so I wonder if some of the pushback that you get isn't because you're dealing with these things that maybe people aren't totally in touch with or they're living lives where they haven't explored those things. And so it's just you're kind of activating some immune system in their own belief system. Yeah, I think it's I think it's true also because like people have personal beliefs about it already. Basically, like you come into it with bacteria, like I don't have ba beliefs really about bacteria that much. I mean, not very many. Uh, so it feels like very flexible. But with sex, people everybody has an idea about how it works. Like one of the most common ones is like, oh, something in childhood caused your fetish. This is like such a common perception that it's like basically taken as like a like something that we don't even question. The question is not did something cause it. The question is what caused it. Yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of that, especially like the whole sex work thing. Like anytime I publish anything that even vaguely appears to normal normalize uh, anything deviant sexual activity, the people are very angry about that. Yeah. I think we can thank Freud for that one, uh, with the childhood stuff. It's interesting how like in general theories get built on other theories i've created a new i'm coining a term called theory stacking for this where you make some initial idea and everybody likes it and then everything that comes afterward is piled onto that and i think it's actually i don't want to say dangerous but it seems like it's a place that lacks um attention within the traditional institutional structures for ontology like how we come to know stuff it's like there's not a lot of space for examining the bottom of the stack when it comes to theories well it's basic assumptions it's basically like what you said where it's like people will assume immediately that it must have been something that happened in childhood to create a fetish right and someone who comes along who's like well i don't i, I don't know if that that theory is 
But it's really hard to it's really hard to undo those foundational things, right? Yeah, because they're usually credentialed, right? Like you have somebody who's got some influence that writes a lot of papers, spends a career making the point of this theory, and in order to undo that, you would then have to do the equivalent. You would have to spend your career undoing that theory, accumulating the amount of evidence that forces consensus to change. And that's a really I think that can be exhausting in the academy, but we don't have systems for doing that outside the academy because if you're coming from outside of an institution it's really hard to get people to listen to I feel like yeah this is true there's not like a great incentive structure at least I've never worked in academia so um, I'm like going off of things that academics have told me but it sounds like it's just the incentive structures are set up like really terribly like you build or die that sort of thing um, but when it comes to the origin of fetishes specifically, I think that, I mean, I don't, there might be people who have written about this, I'm not sure, but I think like most of the time, it, like the reason people believe the other thing is for similar reasons that people like believe in, you know, psychics or telepathy or ghosts in that it's like, if you sort of observe your own experience and things going around you, it's easy to like over pattern match. I think it's just a case of overactive pattern matching and like attempts to find narrative in noise. Like if you experience, you know, some sort of sexual desire as an adult, um, you might like look back at times in your childhood where like instances of that thing were like particularly meaningful to you and be like, ah, that was probably the origin. Um, when I think like it's just as reasonable that like maybe you were predisposed to find that thing very fascinating in the first place. Um, and that was just like, uh, there was both like or came out of the natural thing. So, so a lot of people like, you know, are believe that, something has caused their fetish, but I suspect that the thing that caused their fetish was already there. Do you think that there's some meaning that they attribute to it being caused rather than it being innate? Yeah. It's a sense of control. It's a sense of like, like, like don't you have the sensation where, you know, finally you get an explanation for something that you are or some sort of like psychological quirk that you have. And then like this sensation of relief. You're like, ah, I have access to the cause and effects, and in that, I have control over my experience. It's a very lovely feeling. Interesting. I feel more like if I if I look at something and I see it as being innate, that puts me in the position where I'm like, okay, this is not externally caused, and because it is innate, it is something that I can work on, rather than if it's something external, I feel like it's actually harder to manipulate. That's interesting. So, so just to calibrate, like, for example, uh, would you consider schizophrenia to be innate or external? Oh, that's a really interesting one, because I know that there's research that's been done on cultures that are less, uh, that bin people less, where it's like the, I don't want to misrepresent this, but if I remember correctly, it's basically like cultures where mental illness is seen as something that can be integrated into the community where, say, there's sufficiently strong social ties. Somebody who's schizophrenic isn't binned as being schizophrenic. It's just that they're in touch with something that is not what everybody else is in touch with, and it's kind of accepted and folded into it. And so you, in that in that space, I can imagine a circumstance where you experience something and you lean into it and it's all right versus a situation where you experience something and you lean into it and the society as a whole is structured to alienate and ostracize and abandon you. And that would create a difference in the manifestation of it 
whether or not it's innate. Does that make sense? Like it's seeded. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it sounds like what you're saying is it was seeded maybe innately, but the way that it's expressed and manifested in this thing we call schizophrenia is very external or something like that. Yeah, like there's like let's say that there's a propensity. The propensity is then manifest externally in how it's framed and how it's perceived and you let's say that you have a personality that is more likely to to reject or to rebel against somebody who treats you poorly. Like let's say you have schizophrenic tendencies and everybody treats you like you're crazy. And maybe you're the type of personality who, because everybody's treating you like you're crazy, you get angry and you get frustrated and you get annoyed and you lean into it more. And so it manifests the way that it does in our society rather than how it would elsewhere. Hmm. Haven't they done studies or say this generically? I feel like I have the fact lodged in my head that people in other cultures, sometimes when they're schizophrenic, they hear like nice voices instead of angry voices, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and like the, I think, I remember there being a uh, study that showed that after the 40s when uh, aliens, like visitation became a thing, that more schizophrenics started to have alien visitation narratives. And so it's definitely something, the voice that you hear inside of your head is a product of the society. So I feel like it's, honestly, maybe I'm like telling on myself, but I feel like it's a voice that I can recognize in myself sometimes. And I have enough, I have enough of a distance from it where I'm like, yeah, my cell phone probably is listening to me, but I'm not going to like form my entire identity around that because I have other things that I want to do that allow me to kind of keep that in my periphery and focus on something else. But somebody who doesn't have something else and focuses iteratively on that, like Mm. how much of that is of their own creation? I don't know. Hmm. interestingly i suspect that schizophrenia is actually like relatively speaking one of the least impacted by society uh things i'm not saying it isn't at all but like for example in my data i asked you know where are you on the political spectrum and do you report having any of these mental illnesses and there was a big list and almost all of them were like significantly skewed towards like the left side of the political spectrum which it seems like, of course, not like if mental illnesses are some some sort of like like a physical trait, like unmalleable, we would expect to see an even distribution. And so my guess is that like uh, illnesses that are more, the, the more an illness is sort of like created and influenced by culture, the more we would expect to see it influenced by like where you are in the political spectrum or, you know, other things like related to personality, roughly. Um, and schizophrenia was one of the most in the middle ones. Like all of them were super shifted to the left, but schizophrenia was like almost exactly represented by both right and left um, as one example. Another example is like, I looked at the um, mental illness gap between cis and trans people and female specifically. Um, and I would expect to be like, all right, like which mental illnesses do you think are overrepresented in trans people due to the way the society treats them? Like, you know, shame and suppression and all of this stuff. Like I would, do you, do you want to like, have a guess at which ones anxiety probably depression mm-hmm. yeah that, that was also my guess like probably ones that have to do with like being like unhappy in your own mind to some degree um and they were elevated but the most elevated ones by far were autism and schizophrenia which, which are like which i could see like maybe this is caused by society to some degree but like not at several times the rate of like anxiety and depression 
Like there's clearly some other sort of brain thing going on. So actually, so when it comes to actually schizophrenia specifically and like slightly to a smaller degree autism, my guess is this is actually, actually pretty independent relatively to other mental illnesses, which is, I think, why I asked about that one specifically. I wonder, though, if other factors, social factors, like what about socioeconomic status with schizophrenia? Or I have it lodged in my brain, too, that uh, more tribal cultures experience less incidence of schizophrenia. I wanted to Google that. Maybe you can check it out, Nastia. Uh, but I wonder if it's just some factor that hasn't been uncovered. But I also, I also hear what you're saying, though, that, that, things, um, that there's certain things that appear obvious on the surface that, that might actually be influenced by the present modern landscape more than others. Yeah, I'm not saying that schizophrenia is completely independent. I'm just saying that, like, if we have a spectrum of how influenced by society, it's like some things clearly are brain, like, you can punch somebody in the head and then they get a concussion, and this is not, like, a culturally induced issue. This is clearly, like, oh, your neurons are firing right. Like, clearly there is some sort of thing where just your neurons don't fire right, and it's, like, a little bit hard to disentangle. So I'm my guess is that there there is, in fact, a spectrum. Well, so... I'm looking up the schizophrenia stuff, but something that you said about the like the correlation of uh, diagnosed mental illnesses along the political spectrum seems to be a readout of people's relationship to therapy and to mental illness in general, right? Like that seems yeah. like the most obvious thing because I know plenty of people that are on the right that are like therapists are stupid. This is like a waste of time. It's just, you know, you, you navel gazing that perpetuates, that perpetuates self-pity or whatever. Mm-hmm. And that type of person would be deeply resistant to being diagnosed in any way, shape or form. But there's, there's a tendency that goes along with, I think, a left-leaning political identification that places much more value on this kind of introspective internal work that that by its very nature forces you to be diagnosed because I think that people go to talk therapy and they have this feeling that what they're doing is they're just talking to someone but that person is also diagnosing that person is like you know there's there's worksheets that people do when they go to therapy and those worksheets are ways that they're binning you into a category of what it is that you have and then the treatment modality downstream of that is going to be reflected by what disorder they think that you have because you can't treat somebody if you can't identify what it is that's wrong with them and so i think it was like jean twenge or twenge i don't know how to how to pronounce it she does a lot of work on on the like the prevalence of mental illness and she posted this graphic where you know all of these different mental illnesses had increased by you know ten thousand percent since 1990 and i'm like i don't think that that's I don't think that that's an objective temperature of the world. I think that that is what you're getting is a readout of diagnosis and the integration of therapy and therapy speak into society. And that's not a lens that she's looking at it from because that's what she does. She's a therapist. And so it's really hard to step outside of that box to be like, okay, well, is the measurement the thing that is creating the thing in the first place? Like if we stopped measuring it, would it go down? Obviously it would. Mm-hmm. And so there's just this, like, whenever you start talking about mental illness, I feel like you you can't talk about it without talking about what the diagnosis is doing. Yeah. 
Uh, I think this is probably a big part of the reason why the left is recording higher rates of mental illness. It's not necessarily because they have more, but because it is the kind of culture where you're supposed to like go to therapy and then report your mental illnesses. It's just interesting that this effect is not applying to schizophrenia. I'm still, hold on. Let me let me see if I can find the if, uh, the paper about this. Schizophrenia is a, is a really interesting classification. I'm also really interested in the cannabis schizophrenia conversion situation too, because um, I've kind of seen that happen before in people I knew, and that's really interesting too because it seems like there there is this this interface where you're innate self meets the world and what comes of it is is largely anyone's guess and i think that's why these psychological sciences have such a rough time is because nobody can predict what somebody's going to do with their life and so how do you actually say anything meaningful about the outcome but yeah i'm i'm curious uh i'm curious what's the most shocking thing that you've learned how, how long have you been doing research by the way well my, i did my first survey like 10 years ago but it was you know terrible so i've technically been doing it 10 years but slowly been getting better that whole time what's the and what's the craziest thing you've found so far depends on what you're trying to look at one of my favorite things recently is that like the quality of a relationship seems to be impacted by how poly you are like very monogamous people and very polyamorous people have roughly similar degrees of relationship quality, but people in the middle do not. Mm. Another is that like, it seems like very little in childhood correlates with fetishes at all. Like if it does, it's quite mild. Um, you basically knowing somebody's childhood, like you mostly cannot predict what they're going to be sexually into as an adult, uh, but only for cis people, for trans people, there are in fact correlations. And that I, that's a, that's a big fascinating one to me. Uh, I don't understand why. Mm. What, what part of it do you not understand why? Like, like there's it, like, so, so if something doesn't correlate, if an experience doesn't correlate with a fetish, this means that like a fetish is sort of um, like maybe more ingrained. Maybe it's like, maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's like from some sort of stable hormonal thing. But if it, does impact it this means the fetish must be stemming from a different thing and so this means that like does this mean that like in trans people fetishes are stemming from a, like a more malleable source than it is in cis people i don't i don't know if that makes i don't know how to make sense of it yet like if it maybe reveals something something bio i don't want to say biological something that would help us understand the biological process that's playing out in the n neuropsychology of trans people that is that is there to begin with that has always been there yeah maybe <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm bringing this one up because i just i'm so at a loss to figure it out i, I need to i'm sure there's more clues in the data i just have like a, such a massive amount of data it takes a long time to go through so i'm sure like i can like really hunker down and look at it but like to me, this is fascinating because I like a lot of things are like, oh, that's a cool finding, and this makes sense. And I just don't really remember those quite as well. But like it's the things it's the things that don't make sense that really catch me. Wait, can you remind me of the first one that you, you said again? Oh, that poly polyamory is like bimodal. Or sorry, like the quality of a relationship is bimodal for a degree of polyamory. So if you're very monogamous or very poly, you have 
good good time. And if you're only like mm. a little bit monogamous or a little bit poly, you have a shitty time. Yeah, that that one makes a little more sense. <laughs> like if you're fully on board with wh- however you're living, it tends to go smoother for you. Yeah, intuitively, I would agree with that, right? Because it's like people on both sides of that distribution have committed fully. And if you've committed fully, that means that you don't have psychological fractures around it and you're not in a monogamous relationship and like breaking the confines of that relationship. Or if you're fully poly, you're not looking to go for monogamy in a context where that's not what the people around you are looking for. And so it's like, I think that one of the criticisms that people often give for poly relationships is that there's one person who's unhappy secretly. And that seems like a misalignment of what you actually want versus what you're going for in the world. And I think that people do that a lot with social constructions where it's like you. And I want to I, I don't know. I'm curious to know what you think of this, where it's like, OK, so if you have a vision of who you want to be in the world that you have constructed through interacting with cultural representations of that form. So for something like polyamory, let's say that you come from a monogamous background and you look around and you're like, I don't like that because of this reason, that reason, and it's not something that I want for myself. And so you strive towards a different social structure, but you're not striving towards that social structure necessarily because it intuitively feels better. You're striving for it because you have defined yourself in opposition to a system that you think won't work. But in reality, you actually do want it to work and you just haven't invested enough of your identity into making it something that's functional. Yeah, and so your theory is that like this is what causes the lower quality relationships? Is it people who just like haven't fully figured it out for themselves? Yeah, it's like people who are trying to be something that isn't in alignment with who they actually are. It's like It's hard to champion something that you're not killing it at too, right? Yeah, but so specifically about relationships, I feel like I come across this all the time that for young women there is a tendency to be like I don't need anybody I don't want to have I don't want to devote myself to one person there's like uh the you know marriage is a patriarchal structure that I would have to give up a lot for in order to be able to be satisfied within it and because of my political beliefs I will take on a social structure that is in line with those political beliefs but those political beliefs aren't necessarily informed by having worked through what it means to find a really functional monogamous relationship. Because both of both peaks of the distribution depend upon maturity, they depend upon communication, they depend upon honesty, they depend upon not running away from conflicts. And that might be what it's maximizing for most because you're successful in both of those modalities by 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 leaning into those things and the people in the middle are maybe just not really f- I don't want to say functional but functional <laughs> yeah I, th- I think generally you're right about that I think there's like a multitude of reasons why the middle has lower ratings but I think that's like a big one of them yeah and it's like with sex research I feel like there is do, do you and I, I feel like there is a tendency for people to behave in ways that are politically motivated 
person like on a personal level and i wonder if you 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 can deconvolve that in your data sets um wait i'm not sure i understand the question you're saying that like sometimes people are personally motivated in the way they interpret data and do i encounter that no i mean like the way that people live is colored by not what they necessarily want but what they think that they should want yeah yeah this is very true well, do, like, is there a way for you to be able to deconvolve that in the data? I mean, it depends on what you're asking. Like, is the question like, are people like not accurately reporting their fetishes because they think they're not supposed to have them? No, but in, in, no, I think that. So, like, let's if we stick to the the like monogamy versus poly. So there's this group of people in the middle that seem like they're less satisfied in their relationships, and how many of those people are in either you know bad monogamous relationships or bad poly relationships because they are in those relationships on the basis of what they think they should be doing rather than what they really want to be doing mm. like somebody who's yeah. in a monogamous relationship but actually wants to be in a poly relationship but can't be because social they don't want to have to go to their parents and be like I I I I have four people I'm in a or relationship boss with or, or their boss or whatever, right? There's like a ton of social strictures that prevent that. And the 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 inverse of that would be somebody who's in a poly relationship who's in that relationship because they're in a friend group where that's the standard and so they they take this on for themselves but what they really want in their heart of hearts is actually to have a monogamous relationship but it would be too difficult to push against the entire environment that they're a part of because they'd have to break with all those people. Yeah, I think this is absolutely part of it. And let's be real, one of those situations happens a lot more than others, uh, given the state of our current culture. Um, but yeah, very much so. Like, my guess is that like you have like a confounder here, where like the amount of social support that you have probably both influences like where on the chart that you pick. Like your culture is going to be pushing you to one of the two extremes. Um, and also influences the quality of a relationship. Like if you're monogamous in a polyculture, you're going to be having a bad time. And if you're poly in a monogamous culture, which is almost all of us, you're also going to be having a bad time. Uh, and this this does kind of like track, like, uh, uh, like I often hear people talking about like, oh yeah, I have a poly friend and their life seems terrible. And statistically speaking, this is kind of true because most poly people are not all the way poly. Like, if you know a poly person, it's going to be somebody who's, like, only a little bit in the spectrum. Because the vast majority of poly people are only a little bit on the spectrum. And my guess is uh, at least one hypothesis for this is that we live in a monogamous culture. And, like, in order to claw yourself away from the monogamous culture is, like, for most people, a huge amount of effort. And only a small fraction end up making it into, like, a liberal city where they have, like, a poly subculture where they can totally be themselves in. So we see this this thing where, like... The more poly you are, the fewer of you are there. But like the people who make it to the end have a great time. Mm-hmm. And most people are probably miserable in their romantic relationships anyways. Are we willing I, to I say I know those? I was most of my life anyways. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's an interesting background by itself. That you had a bad time? I, yeah, I think it's really hard to to navigate intimate relationships. I mean, especially when I was younger, I think I just feel like I look around the world, even at a lot of old people who are like unhappy with their intimate relationships. I feel like it's very common to be unhappy and and be dissatisfied. So if most people are, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if most people, but let's say a lot of people are dissatisfied, then 
you're asking if they're satisfied in their poly versus monogamous relationship, they're probably going to fall in the unhappy range to begin with. Yeah, like what's the base rate of people that are satisfied in their relationships to start with? It's pretty satisfied. I, I, I asked a couple of different ways of measuring. Um, and so it depends on exactly the kind of thing that you're asking about. Like, for example, like I'm satisfied with my sex life versus like, I think this was a good idea versus like, I think this is going to last for a long time. Like these are all different ways of measuring and they all have different rates. In general, people report being quite happy with their relationships. Again, it's hard to know if this is just a thing that you lie to yourself on the survey about. Um, mm. I'm looking at like comparisons between groups, not about base rates really. Um, but it, it does seem to drop for older relationships in general. The longer a relationship goes, the worse people are going to report uh have having a good time in there which is probably due to like you know declining sex drive and having kids and stuff like that yeah i feel like i would and maybe what what comes to mind when you mention that a lot of people that you look around and they're in relationships they're unhappy and it's like if you grew up in the suburbs and you had friends and you would go see your friend's parents and you'd look at your own parents i think that it's pretty common to have an experience where you look at these marriages and you're like this doesn't seem fun. There's like a lot of resentment. There's a lot of bad communication. People are yellers or, you know, stonewallers or whatever. And so you have this, you have this picture of what a long-term relationship that's monogamous looks like. And it's this very captured, cloistered, suffocating place. And it takes a really long time for people to be able to figure out what a really good relationship looks like. And if you get married earlier, you get hemmed in by responsibilities and children and family then you never really get to a point where you're able to fully explore that in a way that you can actually build a satisfying world mm -hmm. it's a little bit like a trade-off like a lot of people really value the thing where you build the life and commitment um, but this often ends up quite at odds with having a happy relationship especially like you said people tend to commit earlier tend to like build be more interested in building a life um, or like you value commitment over getting out of the relationship if it's bad, which means that you have like a greater proportion of long-term committed relationships of like really bad dynamics. And so like it's that's an interesting trade-off to me because often when people talk to me about relationships, they talk about it where the ideal is a long-term committed relationship. Like sort of assuming that like if you are long-term committed, you must be happy. Like these two things go hand in hand. But I'm like, you should like figure out the degree, like to what degree, like how much happiness are you willing to sacrifice for a stable life? Uh, I don't think it should be all the happiness. Well, she's ideally you wouldn't sacrifice any, right? I just think it's, I think, I don't know. My own personal experience was that it's, it took me a really long time to find somebody that I really felt in tune with like that. And that, you know, that could be totally personal. Maybe other people have a much easier time, but I think it's just a really difficult thing to pull off for some people, maybe for a lot of people. Yeah, but, I'm, but I'm surprised. obviously not everybody. Yeah, I'm surprised that the relationship satisfaction in your surveys is so high. Was did that surprise you? Not really. I think I think most people are generally like like view their relationship as worth it. I mean, again, it depends on what you're measuring, and again, it does drop over time. Like like if you're in a relationship for twenty plus years, it's like eh, they say it's like kind of worth it, roughly. Like yeah, I guess it's okay. <laughs> I guess I think we're also seeing the thing where people like sort of drop out of the relationship when it gets sufficiently unhappy. That's probably true. I but I'm I also the, re the first reason I started doing the relationship survey to begin with, I think, it was like five years ago. It was like my mom is in a terrible marriage. My dad sucks, and 
I was like, I wonder, like a big part of the reason you stay in a bad marriage or like a bad relationship is sort of because you don't really believe that there's other options. Like, like, oh, this must be what relationships are. Just like you have to put up with it because this is what life is. And so I was like, okay, if my, if I can make my mom fill out a survey where she like has to like put in the concrete answers and then I show that like everybody else answered that they liked their relationship a lot more like compared to her, like maybe this would be like a big wake up thing. Like, wait a second, like the life doesn't have to be like this. And that's like, that's like, that is like actually the original motivation behind doing the survey. Cause I wanted people who are in bad relationships to look at the high satisfaction ratings and be like, wait, a normal relationship is happy. Like relatively speaking, and I'm not in that normal relationship. So just like reevaluate what the standard is. Mm. I wonder though if there again, uh, this is the the difficulty of surveys. It's like in times where I've been in a really bad relationship, I'm probably less likely to fill out a survey about relationship quality because it's like it's like having a wound that you don't really want to look at. Mm. Yeah, I definitely would have never made it onto your survey back in my 20s when I was miserable there's just there's no way I would have participated in something like that what if what if it was not a survey about the quality of a relationship but you get to find out what two characters your relationship reminds like what two fictional characters does your relationship most resemble that'd be awesome I think that's what I I did I I didn't want people to know that they were doing a thing where I was like analyzing their thing I wanted to be like find out like this fun result at the end of the survey. That was the way I marketed it. And that's what people got. That's fucking awesome. I love that. That's (laughs) exactly how you should do it. (laughs) How did your, how did your mom react to it? Nothing. All all things are hopeless with that whole dynamic. I would really love to have more data on really on, on older people. Like, I think that that's something that is really kind of absent from the world that I look at where I'm like, for example, like having children. There's people that make it their identity that they're child free and they post a lot about it and that's like their whole thing. And so obviously they're going to be big proponents of it. But and occasionally there's articles where people are like, we interviewed five child free women in their 60s. Hear their experiences. And I I really want to know more about the decisions that people make in their youth and how they live with them for decades. These decisions that are at some point inescapable where you have committed to something that you cannot go back on and how that plays out in terms of life satisfaction. And that's just, I'm not necessarily saying that that's something that I'm asking you for, but I just, I wonder what it would look like to actually be able to collect that data from a sufficiently large population because i think that your surveys tend to skew younger yeah significantly younger yeah and there's this whole black box because i'm like okay so the the vagaries of youth are fundamentally not wise because you don't know what it's going to be like to live with that decision. And so I think that a lot of the the panic, the moral panic that people have about something like uh, trans people or polyamory or any of these like different sexual orientations has to do with a feeling of that's not going to that's not going to pan out for you. Yeah. And I and I wonder where to get that data because it's something that's 
that's the thing that will solve it. That's the thing that will resolve whether or not this is something that you should be morally panicked about. Because if people who make these decisions go on to live perfectly contented lives and 40 years after the decision, 50, 60 years, they're like, no, no, no that was a good decision. I'm, I'm happy with it. Then that's more telling than anything else, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is a pretty hard thing to, like, I'm not sure how to design something that would test for that. Because it's like the amount of con confounders would be massive. But it's worth trying because like at least you get a hint, right? Like at least it's some evidence in favor of universe A versus universe B, even if it's not a lot. I have like a little bit of this, like, well, I don't have most of my sample is young. I still get really big samples, which means I still get old people. It's just fewer of them, um, which is like another issue on its own. But for the relationship survey I did, the ones that had kids uh, reported lower satisfaction in their relationships than the one that didn't have kids, which is kind of predictable. I think like most people are not very surprised at that. Uh, but this kind of, your, your general thing makes me think, mm, maybe I should try a survey where like I ask people about like general life path decisions. Like, did you go to college? Did you transition? Uh, did you get married at this age? That sort of thing. And to see, just ask like, how satisfied are you with your life? Um, see how that yeah, works. Because, I mean, the, the the true impact of work that's done on people's preferences and lifestyles and orientations, I think, is really trying to ask and answer the question of, like, is this good or not? Because that's the question that people are so preoccupied by. Like, if you look at the culture wars, the culture wars really hew down this line of, like, is this good for you or is this bad for you? Mm. And I think that the 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 proof is in the pudding so to speak where it's like these are i think that these are achievable questions to answer i just i think that there's not a lot of there's there's not a lot of funding that goes towards trying to figure it out because it's not really like who's doing this kind of research right yeah it's it's hard it's hard to i think like to do it a high quality it would be quite expensive like you, you could ask people, like, all of the young trans people and all of the old trans people, like, how's transitioning? And, like, see, but, like, this is really confounded by generational effects. Like, we have a totally different, right? So it's like, okay, in order to do a really good one, you have to ask people regularly throughout life, and that starts to get really expensive. It's relatively modern, too, right? We don't probably have super long-term data on transitioning. Is that true? Yeah, it is relatively modern, but like, I mean, if you're if you're good at finding them, you can still find a good enough sample size of early transitioners. Is it a is it a more prevalent thing now than in the past? Yeah, significantly. Which is again, it's hard to tell. Like, are people like actually becoming trans in higher numbers, or are you just like we have greater acceptance, so people are realizing the thing that they would have been all along? You know. I have I have a kind of controversial opinion about this that I've never really aired. A pine. A pine. Um, I I have a feeling like there is a there's a futurist movement that really believes in the ability of technology to fundamentally shift who humans are, and I kind of see the explosion of the trans movement to be or to of like trans identity to be in line with that philosophy, which is that we are technological, you know, we were promised flying cars, but what we really have is the ability to change who you are on a fundamental level and to shift society in such a way that you have the opportunity to live as who you want to be. 
And that is, there's a part of me that is worried about that because I feel like I, I don't believe in God as this like person who sits somewhere and tells you what to do, but I do believe that there is a sense of consequence in nature. And so I view that as being the thing that we are all subject to and that we all owe something to, which is the fact that when you start to change things, you change them in terrible and unpredictable ways because there's not just your first order consequences, but there's second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth, whatever. And I think about this in terms of something like DDT. You find this miraculous substance that can get rid of bugs. You stop the propagation of things like malaria. You spray it everywhere. And then... Ten years later, you have destabilized the trophic webs to the degree that the animal populations are collapsing. And so you have this thing that's a good idea that you technologically apply to the world, and then you only see the side effects of it down the road. And so there's a part of me that really loves the idea that humans can transcend their, their animal nature by embracing the thing that makes us human, which is technology, which is the ability to see a future that you want and to make it happen. Like we were talking to Michael Levin the other day, and he's uh, he's a biology researcher at Tufts who does he does this crazy stuff with regenerative medicine, where he believes that by understanding the desires of the individual cells in an organism, you can you can get the organism to regenerate limbs. And he's shown this in flatworms. He's shown crazy things with like he can make like little xenobots from frog skin. So he takes like frog skin cells and he puts them in a dish and he he treats them in a specific way and they become these little tiny like organisms that behave and they reproduce and they make more of themselves. And so he's like, look, you can you can do this to cells. You can make cells want different things. And by wanting different things, they create a new organizational form. And sometimes that organizational form takes many generations. And so I think that what we stand here the precipice that we stand on is the precipice of people changing what it means to be human. And I think that that's both really exciting and both really frightening because we've never had such freedom to do so before. We've always been constrained by the strict morals of a church or the strict morals of the society, which is like, no, you can't do that because it's wrong. And you're like, well, why is it wrong? Well, it's just wrong. Don't. God says so. And we don't have that as much anymore. And I think that's generally good because I think it's constructive. It brings a lot of anxiety too, right? Like having to make all those choices for yourself all of a sudden. Yeah. And so I we, wonder. Yeah. yeah. So we're standing on this precipice where people have almost an infinite collection of choices that they can make for themselves. And there's not a structure in which we decide whether the choice is good or bad. And... It seems like the work that you're doing is touching on all these things because sex has always been so confined in society, especially in American society. And so when you start to dig into these things and you start to look at like, well, is it good or is it bad? The, the ultimate question is like, well, who will we become when we accept these things and how will we change? Will we still be, will, will we still be the same humans that we've always been? And is it good that we will be or that we won't be? And I wonder if you spend time thinking about that. It, it's, I mean, like you're pointing at like Chesterton's fence, which is like we find, you know, a norm and we're like, should we understand why we have the norm before we get rid of it? Which like I empathize with, or with to some degree. But also like, 
I kind of like watching you like explain this thing. And to me, we've already changed what it means to be human. Like from my perspective, you are already some sort of like advanced thing that is uh, different in almost every single way from like the original Homo sapiens that evolved on this planet. Like you have like your hair is softer. Like you probably are on like medication. You know, I've had plastic surgery. Like you're wearing some weird shit that like we invented out of like, we can't even comprehend. Like your mind is like full of software that like got downloaded from culture that like, where is that in normal? Like we already are nothing like the thing that we evolved to be. We are so far. We're already transhumanist. We aren't, we've done this. And so I'm like, yeah, there's definitely things that you can do that can hurt, but like, I feel like often we're just blind to the like the stack on which we're already built. We're like being trans feels like one tiny little more change on top of this massive thing that we've already modified. And like, sure, some of them are not great, but like we iterate and we find out. Like this is the whole point. We're go- we're gonna find out if the trans thing is good or bad, and I think we should do that. This is part of what it means to grow as a human civilization. So let's go be trans. As far as we can tell, if you're a person and you have gender dysphoria and you're like, I think the best thing for me is attempting to transition. Like my thing is like, yeah, we should, okay, let's do that. And then, because we don't have any better idea, right? Like this is how we learn. We do science to it. And yeah, and it gets tangled in with the freedom thing too, right? Which is a little bizarre because like, obviously guns can hurt people or, you know, eating hamburgers can hurt people or whatever, cigarettes or anything, alcohol. It's like, but it's so, we still leave them there, right? You can still go and, drink yourself to death anytime you want or buy a gun and blow your head off or shoot your wife or anything like you can do that and so like it's strange how the sexual stuff veers into the like you know like let's just take it off the table kind of approach because ultimately these come down to people who need to be able to make make their own choices off of the data or make these decisions like look at the world understand it better and then decide what to do and uh, I don't know, it's just a little disturbing when I see the discussions going into the realm of like, let's take this off the table, whether it's trans rights or gun control or anything. It's like, it just seems like a Pandora's box kind of proposition where you're like, you're not going to get rid of these things. You're not going to get rid of people who feel this way and want to act this way. And the best thing you could ever do is equip them with some information about you know, the consequences of those actions. You know, if you shoot your wife, you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison and it's not going to be good. So now, you know, it's your choice, something like that. Right. I think like the answers to like, uh, in, like include and transcend or whatever the phrase is, like there's a lot of like neo trads who hate what I do. And they're like, we should return to you know, the traditional gender roles. And to some extent they have a point like, yeah, we have problems now that didn't exist back in traditional gender roles days, but you can't, you can't go back. Like we're here for a reason. You can't just undo those reasons. Like what we can do is like figure out how to take what and why we're here and like include it in like a sort of beautiful and novel way. Like how do we build on the thing to like have greater systems that now like more elegantly flex the problems that the ones that are new, that are newly created. So like, yeah, like, like for example, like being transgender, maybe taking hormones ruins your body let's figure out a new way to make it so that doesn't ruin your body. Like the answer is not like, let's go back uh, to, to the way things were. The answer is like, let's, you know, find more beautiful ways of moving forward. Cause you can't go back. You can only just absorb the momentum and become a new thing over and over and over again. I think a yeah, lot of hundred percent. 
I mean, that's why that's why the doomers are, are such a drag to me. Whenever somebody is just like, well, civilization's falling apart and everything, I'm like, yeah, maybe, but it's somebody's going to build a new one and we're going to have to do all this all over again. And so those just don't seem like very realistic or viable options. Like they don't move us forward. I mean, one of the, uh, Anastasia mentioned Mike Levin. I mean, one of the most useful things that he said in that interview was the way that you evaluate some scientific idea is in, at least in some part comes down to uh, what it allows you to do. Like what better future are you going to be able to achieve with that understanding? And I feel like a lot of the, the arguments that are trying to, to quash these, these different explorations are acting in bad faith on that level. I think that there's a couple of reasons why people make those arguments. I think one of them has to do with reproduction. Mm. Like the the neo-trads tend to be they they tend to believe that the that physical reproduction is the mode of ensuring your culture's survival. And if you allow for non-standard ways of organizing your sex life, that you'll reproduce less and that you'll decrease the population that believes in the things that you believe in. And that way it's dangerous because you'll be taken over by, I don't know, like the barbarians or something. Like there's just this tendency of, of really, I think it's nationalistic at its heart. There's this weird fallacy that people think that other people's decisions are somehow going to undermine their own decisions like i don't know if you saw um probably not but uh matt walsh was on joe rogan a few weeks ago or months ago i don't know when and it was a really interesting conversation because like they were all broing it out for the first two hours or something and then at some point matt started advocating that same-sex marriage was a threat to society at large and Joe just kept asking him, like, I don't, I don't understand how it hurts my marriage that my friend is married to somebody doing whatever the hell he's doing in his house, whatever. And, and, and Matt was just got really frustrated and like, it kind of blew apart, which was pretty fun, actually. And I think that is kind of the, the ultimate death knell to these like restrictive movements is like, you can't really tell me, you can b make this vague statement like it's undermining society or something. But when you really push on that, you're like, how? Like, how is that affecting my marriage and what I'm doing? And how is that threatening? Because ultimately, that's the crazy thing about sex and intimacy is it's like, it is, <laughs> by definition, it is this, it is this very one-on-one -on -one personal experience that doesn't really involve anybody else. And so, how in the world can you make a rational argument that anything anybody else is doing is affecting what I'm doing in that very tiny little protected space that I go into? You know? Unless you're afraid that your ideology is going to die. Because you need people who believe in your ideology to reproduce in order to propagate it. Yeah, I mean, I, like... I know people who are like very pronatalist who aren't nationalists. They just like, like humans. They're like, I don't want the human civilization to collapse. But yeah, a lot of the time it is driven by like more nationalists or like religious, a lot of religions do this, which is kind of funny. Uh, Cause like everybody, just, they keep like make more babies and all the babies deconvert. <laughs> very ironic. Um, 
But yeah, I, I, like people really like the, the term, the harm concept is used to justify so much. Like, cause people's morality, I think sort of intuitively, like a lot of our like modern Western morality revolves around the concept of harm. And so if you want to be taken seriously by making a moral argument, you have to claim right to the concept of harm. And so you, but people like play a lot of tricks and like redefining it. Like, oh no, it's really actually harmful, but like in a very fake way that you can't put your finger on. It's a societal thing. It's an abstract thing. It's like a soul thing. Like, like there's some people who think that sex work is causing me harm. And I'm like, I'm having a great time. And they're like, but you were actually harmed, right? They can't be like, oh, it's bad for other reasons. They have to like apply the harm concept to me, even if there's no evidence for mm. that. I think the harm concept there might come down to the the popularization of it, right? Because I think that if you look at like the income distribution on something like OnlyFans, the people who are on top make a lot of money, but the vast majority of people don't make a ton of money or any at all. And so you basically have a a, a one-way gate that you pass through. And once you've passed through it, your success is far from determined. and the likelihood it is that you won't be very successful, but then forever you will have you will have you know naked pictures of yourself on the internet in a society where that's harshly judged. And so I think that when people make the harm argument, they make the harm on that level where it's like, okay, so if we have a society that popularizes this, and you have a lot of young girls that haven't figured stuff out for themselves yet on on like a strong internal basis and are still blown about by the vagaries of, of what's popular or what's cool, then you have a condition where people are doing sex work and they're dissatisfied with it. Yeah. See, I would have thought that the harm thing would come down to like the viewership or something. Well, I think, hold on, I, I want to yeah, yeah. see what Ayla has to say. I mean, imagine like a culture where I'm talking to some very conservative Muslims and the Muslims are like, well, if you encourage a woman to exit her house without her headscarf, uh, like she doesn't know what the consequences are going to be. Our society is going to heavily judge that she's going to be barred from ever marrying. And I'll be like, okay, yeah. On one hand, yeah, like maybe you should actually warn her that you shouldn't go outside without her headscarf. But like on the other hand, I kind of feel like we're putting the blame in the wrong place. Like if posting, like if a naked photo of you can ruin your life, we maybe we should be angry uh, at the society that ruins their life. It feels like a little bit victim blaming, although. I'm not like against warning people. Like I think it is, I think if somebody is like, okay, I'm going to take this really big risk and subject myself to a lot of social blame for the hundred thousand dollars a month, I know I'm definitely going to get, like, I think this is very misguided and in fact harmful because people are like, I think believe they're entering into a contract, which the other bar like side of the bargain is not fulfilled. I think that this is generally overstated with people's concerns about OnlyFans. I think like most people are like relatively well calibrated. Like when I talk to people who are asking me, should I do OnlyFans? It doesn't feel like they're significantly misguided. I think they're just like, I don't even know how to make that much money. Uh, is it worth it? Like how, what are the prospects I'm going to lose? Like in my personal life, based on talking a whole bunch of people who come to me because they, I am like well known in this field. Uh, I'm not getting like the impression that there's a vast misguidance, but to the extent there is uh, people being misguided, I think that this is bad and we should correct it. <laughs> is it promising? Like what are your odds of succeeding on OnlyFans if you're new to the game? It's actually like 
kind of better than you might think. Like a lot of the statistics about how well people perform on OnlyFans come from people who really aren't trying at all and never really had an intention to try. It's including accounts that you just sign up and you're like with your friends and you're like, I'm going to make it OnlyFans and you sign up and you post a picture of your feet and you make zero dollars. Like the the statistics about OnlyFans includes all of that. Uh, if you take like the people who like are like, okay, I'm going to actually treat this as some sort of like viable income that I'm going to work really hard at, then you start getting into like actual money. Uh, and for a lot of people, are, they're not su- they're sufficiently underprivileged that not that much money. What we think is not very much money is to them is a life changing amount. And so we might be like, wow, you're only making two hundred dollars a month, and that they'd be like, holy shit, I'm making two hundred dollars a month. Like, you're who are you to tell me that this is not worth it for my life, right? Like, you have like single mothers on disability who like are barely able to hold down a full time job, and like the extra amount of money is like the thing that allows them to clear their bills, and they're incredibly grateful. Like, I've talked to women like that. And it's, it's a real thing. Um, but it's also like uh, a part of the distribution is skewed by like, uh, like there's a very good chunk of people who are making a little bit of money that is good enough for them. And this distribution is skewed by like the top, you know, like 500 people who are making like an absurd amount of money. It's very similar to like YouTube or like, yeah, I was going to say that reminds me exactly of podcasting and YouTube. Yeah. Cause I remember like in the, even in the early days of our pod, like we're still really tiny, but in the early days, we were still in like the top like 10% or something of podcast because people just abandon their accounts, right? Or they, yeah. you know, they have like three views on each episode or something. And so yeah, it's not automatically, really- like if you have even any audience whatsoever, it's like you're already in the, in the top 10% probably of people. It's exactly what it's like for OnlyFans, yeah. There's another aspect of it that I think people worry about too, which is that beauty is by its very nature fleeting. Hmm. And so if you, I think that this is something that I came across a lot where it's like, I think that it's possible to capitalize on your looks and make that something that's profitable for you. But there's a lot, the, the, the landscape is littered by people who run out the other end of that and then don't have anything. Is it? I I think so. I mean, like there's, uh, God, I have a really, really interesting article about this. Um, like she was this kind of like performative stripper. She would do like things with ping pong balls and like all kinds of like very dramatic shows. And she was popular for a long time, but then she didn't, she didn't have a network that allowed her to invest the money and to figure out what to do next. And so at some point she just got old and it, now I think she lives like on the street in Denver or something. Yeah. What kind of, is there any, what's the future of, of, someone in that profession like what's the what's the 40-year plan or something like that i think it depends it's a very similar problem for like professional sports athletes mm. um but my guess is that most people do not end up on the street like <laughs> it sounds like most women uh like the reason only fans you can you can make so much money on only fans is because there's a lot more demand than there is supply and the reason there's a lot more demand than there is supply is because like women are really hesitant to do it because women know the cost. Like it's just like you go to any group of girls on the street and you'd be like, do you have an OnlyFans? And they would be like, oh my God, like what a scandalous thing. Because there's, there's this cultural shared knowledge of that. Like if you do this, this means like maybe boys aren't going to want to date you. Like maybe uh, like people aren't, if you have kids, they're not going to want to bring their kids over to your house. Like the cost of OnlyFans, like the cost of sex work, the cost of being a slut, cost of like wearing cleavage and making boys look at you. Like every fucking girl knows that. Like deep in her bones, it's a terrifying thing. And this is keeping girls away from OnlyFans. 
And then every, so similarly, people know like, okay, I'm only really making money because of this thing. Like, uh, and I think people generally know that the money is going to run out and whether or not people are good at financial planning is a separate question. And I think like I support efforts to make uh, girls in sex work, like expose them to greater financial advisors and give them like help and support. Um, I think we see like similar issues, like I said, with sports athletes, you see a lot of people who make like a million dollars and then they like end up, you know, broke later on. Um, This is just sort of like what happens when you're young and impulsive. Uh, It seems like some of the, some of the best sport, the most successful long-term sports athletes end up opening uh, almost like dynasties, right? Like I'm thinking of MMA or something like they open a gym and they train like, and they, they pass their knowledge on and they sort of build communities. I guess that's really what it comes down to is building communities. Is there any analog of that in this world? Kind of me? Yeah. There's Amaranth. There's like uh, a lot of the big name streamers that have like some sort of sway are, are able to like create some sort of business thing. Also, ideally, you save money. A lot of sex workers I know, they intend to save for retirement. Because like all of all of us, all of us are very aware that there's a ticking clock. It's not like we just don't know this is going to happen. We know like, oh, we're making a lot of money now. What am I going to do in 10 years? Because, you know, you always get those messages. All the men are like, ha, 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 you're like such a slut. You're making money now, but you just wait. You're going to get old and wrinkly. No man's going to want you. <laughs> I get that all the time, all the time. People are like, watch, well, look at how she's going to be sad and fallen, right? <laughs> like I said, it's not an unknown problem for anyone. People freaking love it when when uh, successful people fall apart too. It's like it's yeah. like the most entertaining thing in the world for some reason. I like I think that the problem with trying to criminalize sex work and to try to ban all this stuff is that what it's doing is it's it's removing people's ability to actually legitimize it and to survive off of it. And there's this moral crusader aspect, which is like, well, if you just, if you criminalized it, then you'd solve the problem. And it's like, no, you'd still have a black market and you'd still have people participating in it, but then you would make it harder for them to be able to do anything with the money that they make and be able to treat it as legitimate income. And it feels deeply, like, I hate to throw this around, but it feels deeply sexist to, to be like, look, you can't make money off of your body like that's wrong and you shouldn't do it and it's like well why not like why can somebody... oldest profession in the world right <laughs> i mean yeah it's like this is this is it's a market and if you if you model things as markets and you allow for the fact that if somebody's got a big brain they're going to go work for some ai startup and get money off of that they might get alzheimer's like they too are not eternal and always be be strong but what we've done is we've created a system where we're like well the vices that we don't like will push out to the sides and i don't think that people spend enough time thinking about the harm that it causes the people who are trying to get out of a terrible economic situation because it's like if you if you start out of a low socioeconomic class and this is what you have as as the path out then who in their right mind would think that it's right to ban it yep that's what happened to me and sex work allowed me to claw my way up. Hmm. If I didn't have sex work, I probably would be working at a gas station somewhere. Did you ever think of... So I, I want to know more about the sort of the, the arc that you traveled. Because did you ever 
you're you're super smart. You could have gone to like academia, become a professor. Like you could have you could have worked at a data analytics company. Like obviously, this is you're you're still brilliant. Yeah, you're still good. But it's like, is that just something that didn't seem possible at some point? No, I was homeschooled in a very patriarchal society where my life at no point included something like that as a possible future. Uh, we were poor. I like would go hungry sometimes after I moved out of the house. I attempted to go to college, um, but I was so I didn't have enough money, and they kicked me out. Uh, my parents wouldn't co-sign any loans, uh, and so I worked at a factory for a year on the factory floor, assembling things on assembly line, like 50, 55 hours a week, four a.m. It was really sucked. And but at that point, I just didn't have any sense that I, my life could be greater than that. Like I was upset and I like wanted to try and like, oh, there was a thing in me that did end up trying, which is why I tried sex work. Cause I was so upset. I was like, I, do, I don't want this to be the way that I live. Um, but yeah, there's, there was no realistic opportunity for me, especially it's hard to communicate the amount of cultural disconnect I had as a homeschooler. Um, Cause I didn't go to public school. I, did, I only knew other people who were homeschooled also like, and so there was just not like the reality bubble of like what was possible with my life was so small. Um, like when you say like, Oh, you could have become a data analyst at a thing. Like if you told that to me at 19 years old, there's, I've been like, what the fuck you're talking a foreign language. This is just not what, what, how, <laughs> like, how do I get that education? I can't, there's no way. Um, I'm like, I need to make money. I have to spend my time. Like, sure, maybe you could hypothetically, but like, I need to eat food. I need to spend time working to, in order to eat food and to pay. Like, it's just, it was so contracted. Um, but and I was really desperate. So at some point, somebody suggested I try being a cam girl. And I was like, fuck it, I'll try it. And I made $60 my first night taking off my top and masturbating. And I was like... $60. I could I freaked out because like I've never been able to make that much money like by myself. And then I just like head first. I was like, this is all I'm living, breathing, thinking. I would go to beds, like thinking about working. Because it was the first time I had agency. It was the first time I had like power over anything mm -hmm. in my life. I really, really became obsessed with it. And I did pretty well. I ended up making two hundred dollars an hour on average after a few Damn. years. Yeah. Now that you wait, what else would I have done? If I was I was in Idaho. I was a teenager. I didn't know anything. Like, yeah, I'm always struck. I mean, I'm always I'm struck by the parallel in like criminal enterprising too. Like, I'm always like struck by how brilliant criminals are sometimes too. Where it's like, oh my god, like you could have just been a banker or something if you wanted to make all this money. But of course, that's not examining where these people came from and the options that were presented to them in the first place. And I think it leads to like a real misunderstanding of criminal justice in general or like how we are where we are and it's also like okay so 200 dollars an hour there's not a lot of jobs that'll pay you 200 bucks an hour and so if it's possible to achieve that it's hard to it's hard to justify being like no you should go do something else where you'll make significantly less and in you'll have to be part of a hierarchy you'll have a boss you'll have all of these other social structures that are pressing down on you same with selling drugs or anything yeah it's, it's like it's you're, you're normal you're in charge of your own fate in a way that you wouldn't be otherwise and so there's like there's a part of me that's like, okay, well, would it have been better if somebody was like, you know what, we're going to give you a scholarship and you can go do something else? Like, do you ever, if, if a world came, if you could go back and rewind it, 
and you could have gotten a full ride to like MIT or something. Would you have done it? Uh, and now, no. And I think people are like biased towards not changing their past. So it's like maybe that life would have been even cooler. But I think I was like over, I had like a series of pressure points where I was like squeezed, not by my own free will in a sense, uh, into like doing the abnormal thing like over and over again. And this led me to be very successful in a niche. Like I'm competing in a niche right now, which is like the weird kind of like semi-autistic sex worker who like goes on podcasts and talks about research. Like how many of me are there? Like maybe one other person, like if you squint, but how many other people who like went to MIT are there? There's a whole bunch of them, right? And so like, I think like my current life path is like good because uh, because kind of out of necessity. Like, like I became the weird thing because there was no other choice. And if there had been other choices, I might've taken a safer route. I probably would have because I was very scared at the time. I probably would have been like desperate to go to like a normal thing with a concrete path. Um, like, I don't think I'm like a weird person because of any sort of like integrity on my part. Have there been any, uh, is there any downside to, to having gone down that road for you or, or is it all? wonderful it's hard to know the counterfactual like there like maybe i would be richer if i had gone the other path maybe i would have like gotten like a fancy job because i'm like i make only fans now but like i'm really adhd and like i go through spurts where i make a little bit of money and you have to save all of it right because you're going to get old and die so <laughs> i don't know I mean, it seems like you're really positive, like you're just, a, you have a really positive personality. Like you talk about people saying mean shit or stupid shit on the internet and you're just kind of like, yeah, whatever. But I feel like that's kind of unique. I mean, half the people I meet are definitely really harmed by anything negative that happens to them. You know, there's like a degree of neuroticism. and Yeah, I mean, I'm not like not harmed by people saying things on the internet. There have been like, I have like freaky stalkers, which sort of like the existence of freaky stalkers that make me fear for my life makes things that I see on the internet more painful because like mm -hmm. psychologically, like it's not just words. Like I don't know which of those words are coming from somebody who might be trying to kill me. And even if it's like a 0.1% of all of those words, like it kind of elevates, it's like not pleasant. I am not a fan. And I think like I am still struggling to find like better psychological methods of dealing with it. Um, but it's worth it, you know, you know, like I, like I imagine like if you have a kid and it's like full of shit, like literal shit, like poop on the walls, you're probably like, man, this fucking sucks. But like, also, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Like, it's just laden with narrative meaning. Like, I am doing the thing I want to do and I would sacrifice so much more for it. And that's where I am right now. Hmm. Yeah. Anastasia always likes to say that everybody's got to eat a shit sandwich in life, but some people <laughs> choose which shit sandwich to eat. And those are. Those are the people that you see smiling at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that we're at a weird time where people really want to kind of do away with weirdness in a certain way. Where, like... A weird time of anti-weirdness. A weird time of anti-weirdness. So I think about it in terms of uh, like Google search results. Where you go and you try to find something that's maybe that you're... Like we were, we were hiking the other day and we were sitting in this field of California poppies. And we were like, I wonder what the alkaloid content of the California poppy is. 
and you type it into Google. And like, you we know they don't make opium, but we're like, what else is in them? You know, they, they, they're from the, you know, presumably the same family-ish. Like, what else is in them? And you type it into Google, and you just get a bunch of, like, there's some DEA results, there's some, you know, anti-drug results, there's, like, there's a collection of, of things that pop up on the first page, and none of those things are the person with a weird analytical chemistry blog that has been looking at the alkaloid contents of plants. And you know that somewhere there's somebody who has that interest and probably would love to write that blog. But we don't really have a, a system that would allow the people that have these weird niche interests to be able to maximize their agency in executing those interests. And sex work is kind of different because there are these platforms where you're able to do that and there's structures in which you can maximize. And, you know, it's it's functional in a way, but people are trying to delegitimize it, to do away with it, to block people from getting access to it. And I feel like there is there is in the tech world a tendency to highlight the things that are normative and appropriate and to downgrade the things that might be weird or unconventional. And I I wonder if, as somebody who builds communities, if you think about what it's like to build a community that maximizes for this, the high-functioning weirdos that are going to create an interesting world rather than pursue that like structured functionality that people really want from you. Like, how do you keep your Overton window really wide? And not just your own, but how is it is it is it a naive goal to try to create a society that has a wider Overton window? No, I don't think so. I think it's very possible. I think you like you have to be kind of intentional about it. Uh, and to to be fair, very weird societies often tend to be higher variance in both good and bad directions. Um, like if you have like a completely bizarro, highly tolerant society of complete weirdness, you're also going to get people who are very bad in very novel, weird ways that are hard to detect because it's all novel. Um, so I like I don't mean to say that like like I, I personally am very pro big Overton window, but like in, if you're going to make a sustainable community, you have to figure out how do we balance like tolerance of like extreme weirdness while also being able to detect like novel ways that people can be harmful to each other. Um, but if you just like are careful to collect people who are very different from each other, this helps. Um, if you like are careful to uh, not to make it such that you are independent, like a lot of times over 10 windows shrink because your incentives are such that you're going to actually be punished if you say a wrong thing. It's very difficult like to like often if your world will punish you if you think so strangely, you will in fact stop thinking strangely. Like we like to be congruent as people. So, right, so if you're trying to make a corporation where you have to maintain funding from somebody who's going to be mad at you, if you say the weird thing, this is probably not going to be really sustainable to have a very weird community. You have to be completely out of it, which is why I think one benefit that I have is I'm very, very abnormal. Um, like I'm, I'm very independent, like financially and otherwise. So, yeah. What does it take to build a functional, intentional community full of weirdos then? That's that's a massive question. That's a massive question that nobody's like really very good at answering. There are like people who have created intentional communities and have written books about it. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a really hard one. That's part of what I'm at right now. People trying to make some sort of community for weirdos. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's speaking which I do have to get going though. 
the community continues. Of course. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming by. It's yeah. been fun. Yeah. Thank it's you. Really it was a very lovely podcast setup. I appreciate it. And good questions. Yeah.